Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. What is happening, my friend? This is Coach Brad Wilson, the founder of EnhanceYourEdge.com, and today's guest is tireless elite poker coach and course creator, Matt Hunt. Matt is one of the head coaches for two of my favorite poker training entities, Solve for Why, founded by past Chasing Poker Greatness guest, Matt Berkey, and Poker Detox, founded by multiple-time Chasing Poker Greatness podcast guest, Nick Howard. Going into my conversation with Hunt, I didn't really set any specific expectations for how things were going to go. Outside of Twitter, him and I hadn't had any sort of interaction, and I was just working under the assumption that if this dude is trusted so explicitly by Berkey and Nick, then, well, he's probably going to be an awesome guest. What I came away with from our conversation was that whatever expectations I could have set, he would have absolutely blown them out of the water. It's a rare thing that someone in the poker space hits me with something that I've never even thought about or considered, but Hunt did exactly that, and now I'm beyond excited to share this episode with you. In our conversation today, you're going to learn how Hunt found himself hunkered down in Vegas after traveling the world with his future wife, Hunt's theory as to why geo-specific poker styles are a thing, what Hunt believes is absolutely necessary for online poker to survive and thrive moving into the future, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you one of, if not the most valuable teachers that exist in the poker world today, Solve for Why and Poker Detoxes, Matt Hunt. Matt, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you. Good for you to, to drop in in the age of coronavirus. These are, <laughs> this is going to be season two of Chasing Poker Greatness, the coronavirus files. Yeah. Um, We're in a rough time, but uh, I'm glad to have things like this to keep me occupied, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to stay on Twitter all day long, get <laughs> mired down in all the emotion and mm-hmm. stress and anxiety. I've seen that you, you've you been struggling on Twitter with... Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been like up and down on it. It's funny because I, 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 got, I got into a point where I felt like I was like refreshing Twitter every five minutes to see if there was any kind of crazy news that had broken. Because it was right after, it was right after we had that one day where everybody kind of realized that it was getting really bad when like Tom Hanks got it and the NBA got canceled and stuff like that. You know, so like right after that, I was like just scrolling constantly. But then I I got to a point where I had to ration myself because I just became crazy about it. And and now I've come full circle again where I I feel like now I uh, it's not that I don't enjoy being at home with my wife all the time, but I, I like being able to connect with other people besides my wife every now and again. And uh, Twitter is a nice way to do that. So I'm back on there and uh, trying to cope as best I can with the deluge of information that gets thrown at us via, via Twitter these days. Yeah, it's tough. 
I actually, I, I don't know that I find Twitter connecting with the people. <laughs> it's more like, a, it's like yeah. an avalanche of just information and battles and all the things, right? And here we are yeah. speaking about Twitter on a podcast, chasing poker greatness. It's my fault. I led us that direction. <laughs> don't don't want to go go down that that route. I don't I don't know that the listener will particularly enjoy. Um, <laughs> but let's distract the listener from everything Sounds going good. on and ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us a story. How did you get involved in playing cards? Wow. Um, I started when I was in college. I started like like a lot of people. A lot of players, particularly from the UK, uh, get started in in like home games at, at college or at uni as we call it university um so i i started playing with some friends it was i think about i think it was like new year's day 2009 we just had a day we had a random day where we were all like hungover because we'd been drinking the previous night and uh, this was back when i used to drink and i don't anymore and we were just like let's let's find something to do and we just went out and and just we, we bought, found a store that was selling like this like poker set that you get where like you get these tacky little chips and you get decks of cards that like you could rip them in half super easily and we just decided to play and before long it became it went from playing this one game to like we were playing like four nights a week and my friend who was hosting the games was like pretty much breaking up with his girlfriend because she was so mad at him for constantly hosting poker games in his living room you know and uh and so we just kind of all got very very sort of addicted to it and i guess out of the group of us that played consistently i was probably the one that that put the most time into like really trying to get better and really seeing this as something where I could, you know, maybe do this uh, at a, like a deeper level at some point. And then after that, my life circumstances just kind of conspired to the point where I had a job that I didn't really like. And I was also grinding a lot and doing reasonably well playing low stakes tournaments at the time online. Uh, this was back in like 2011 or so. And, uh, I just kind of decided at a certain point that I'd hit a, a threshold where I wanted to do this for a living because it felt more enjoyable and more fulfilling than, uh, than what I was doing. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of where the transition began, I guess. So you're in the States now, right? Yes. Where, when did you, when did you move to the States and why, <laughs> why did you move to the States? It's a, it's a long story. Um, we got time. I moved in, we're, we're distracting I moved in, people, you know? I moved in 2017. Uh, I think it was May 2017. And the the story basically is that I, I met my wife back in uh, 2014. We met online. We met on Reddit of all places, which is a, a, a funny story in and of itself. But Tell it's me. Maybe not a, What's the story? <laughs> I don't know if it's a story for a poker podcast. It's, uh, we, <laughs> well, I, we was, need, I was... Yeah, in, we, um, we need the, the story of Matt Hunt, you know, the, the background <laughs> so people identify with you, you know? Well, without going too much into... Uh, too much into my personal life on a, on a podcast like this. I, I think the, uh, the, the short version of the story of how we met is we were both, uh, she's a writer by trade or she has been for a very long time. She's a playwright. Um, and she writes, she's written some novels and stuff as well. And at the time I was very into screenwriting and we, we ended up talking on a, like a creative writing forum on Reddit, uh, in, in some capacity and just kind of getting to know each other. And, and that progressed into like, she spent some time over in the UK and she was at the time she was living in Texas and she absolutely hated it and wanted any reason that she could possibly find to, to leave for a, a number of, of circumstances that were going on that again, yeah, not important, more personal than I'd like to get into. But, um, 
outside of that, she, she moved to the UK. And, and from that point on, we, we were in a situation where we sort of thought, okay, American, UK citizen, neither of us has a visa to stay long-term in the other one's country. And we didn't want to compromise our ability to travel in future by breaking any regulations, obviously. We didn't want to overstay our, our welcome in any one country. So we did some research and we essentially started traveling for a while where we spent the maximum amount of time we could in any one country without getting like kicked out or, or not let back in. Uh, we spent, I think, five months to begin with in the UK. We went to the US for a couple months. We then went from the US to Canada for a while, from Canada back to the UK. And we kind of just hopped around for a couple of years. We went to a couple of places in Europe and then to Mexico for a while. And in amongst all of that, during one of the trips that we took to Vegas in 2016, so um, this is about two and a half years after we, uh, we first, well, two years after we first met, we, we got married in, in 2016, um, which Vegas was the only place on the planet where we could get married without getting a special visa to get married. So we basically had to do it in Vegas. And once that happened, when we were in Mexico, we were like getting kind of tired of the whole traveling thing. And we needed to make a decision of which country we wanted to settle in if we wanted to settle somewhere. And it basically came down to the UK or the US because that was the only two real options where we could actually get a long-term, uh, a long-term visa to, to stay there and officially settle there. And the, there were a couple of factors we, we thought about, but the main ones were number one, the, the cost and, and length of time it would have taken to get my wife a visa to the UK compared to getting me a green card to stay in the US was about double the length of time. So it would have taken like three years and cost like 12K instead of taking about 18 months and costing like 6K. So that was a big factor uh, in me coming to the US. But also there was the, the factor of it's Vegas and it's a great place to live for a poker player. You know, I know that I'm going to be coming to Vegas every summer right? At the time I was like, I'm going to come to the World Series every summer for the rest of my career anyway. And therefore, why not just live here? And it's, it's a good option for that, you know, in that regard. So um, that was basically the decision-making process. You know, we, we did think about the UK and, and you know, it's, it wasn't completely unreasonable to, to stay there, but the, we were about six months removed from the whole Brexit thing. And uh, that played into it as well. You know, the, the fact that one of the major advantages of living in the UK would have been that we would have both had the opportunity to travel around the EU much more easily. But now that doesn't exist anymore. So that advantage was kind of removed and we just ended up choosing to settle in Vegas. And, and um, I'm very happy I did. I love it here. Uh, it's a huge change from the UK, obviously, but it's, uh, it's a great place to be. So while you're traveling, it's great mm -hmm. that you know you and your wife both have the freedom to work on the road, wherever you're sure. traveling, right? So mm -hmm. you travel to these places, you're grinding poker. My assumption yep. is that you did test out poker in the U S before living here versus yeah. you know, poker in the UK. Mm -hmm. Did you think it was more profitable to play online poker in the U S versus the UK online? Probably not live. Definitely. Yes. Um, so my, one of the reasons why I, was okay with moving here was because I thought I, I'll just switch to playing a lot more live. Uh, cause I'm fine with that. I love live poker. I love online poker for different reasons. And I, for, I guess for a variety of different factors, I, I found that since moving here, I haven't played as much live outside the world series as I would have liked. Um, I keep telling myself like, Oh, I'm going to play 
every year it's like, I'm going to play more this year outside the World Series. And then just other stuff comes up and I never get the chances and it just falls apart. But online wise, I would much rather be, you know, in Canada or somewhere where I can play on the major sites. But live wise, I would, uh, I would not, I would not bother going back to Europe to play an EPT or whatever, unless it was like, you know, uh, a, a special tournament. Like I, I was considering before this whole virus thing happened, I was considering going to play the PSPC in Barcelona this year, but that's a special tournament. I wouldn't just go play a random EPT because why bother when I can play, you know, million dollar prize pools here where 70% of the field is like recreational players, you know? Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about previous years past, but you have a good excuse this year for not, not <laughs> playing more live. That's very uh, true. As far as playing live goes, what stakes mm-hmm. do you typically play? Are you playing cash? Do you play solely tournaments? How does it go? I don't play a lot of live cash. I find live cash to be mostly kind of boring, honestly, because the thing that keeps me most interested in tournaments is the fact that every hand is different. The stacks are always changing always a new challenge every hand so when i do play live i almost exclusively play tournaments um i'll play live cash every now and again for some of the solve for why events that we do and and i i every now and again like it's there are plenty of times when it's fun to sit down at live cash if there's the right environment if you're in a casual kind of a game you know but i couldn't do what a lot of guys do where i just sit down and play two five for an eight hour session five times a week like i that would bore me to tears, honestly. Um, I, I joke a lot of the time in some of the content that we make for Solve for Y, where I, I tell like the guys who play cash, I don't know how they play without antes. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how you, uh, I don't know how anybody looks at like nine five suited on the button and just folds, you know, because there's no antes. But cash guys have to do that, and it, it's just, uh, I find that the tournaments are a nice balance of playing deep enough that there's still a, a substantial skill element. But also, you know, you you have like that uh, that other unpredictable element of it where you get to play wide ranges. So a lot of different types of spots come up and, and you're faced with all these different challenges, I guess. So uh, not a huge live cash fan, more of a tournament guy for sure. What's funny is you're, you're talking to like <laughs> almost an exclusively live or almost an exclusively cash game player. Oh, interesting. I can't imagine folding nine five suited on the button. By the way, antes or no, it's just not. <laughs> Good. It's just not going to happen. I, they would have to, uh, I don't, like, come and swipe some of my stack with the rake. Like, I'm just not folding the nine in the five. Right. But Good. I'm with. Yeah, I, I mean, that, I, I'm that with makes, you that, that like we need we need antes in cash game. I've played a lot of the the Chinese apps, mm-hmm. and what's interesting to me is antes in cash game actually make it better for recreationals it makes a lot of their limps not as bad. Mm-hmm. The people that it typically punishes are the nits, the players yeah. that are like playing 15 to 20% VPIP and just playing very tight. Those are the guys that really get crushed by the annies. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that the sites that operate haven't realized that, that yet and implemented the anti system into cash games like Ignition and ACR. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, if cash was all, if, if like antis became the standard or if every game just had three blinds or, or like there's a variety of different structures you can use to facilitate action in, uh, in, in cash game environments. But if, if it, if it became the case where there was a, there was more of like an incentive to play more hands in live cash, I'm, I'm sure I would play more, but the, I think the, the appeal of tournaments for me, like I say, is there's just so many different spots that emerge. And, and when I do play live cash, 
in in games where like in the more unpredictable games where like you have people straddling a lot and then you get like a lot of action players in there who are just mixing it up with tons of hands like that that's where it gets really enjoyable but like i say the 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 sit down and grind two five with a table half full of pros where like they're mostly just looking to to push a pretty small edge and you're playing 150 big blinds deep as opposed to like these uncapped games where you can play three, 400 bigs deep. Yeah, it just doesn't interest me a ton. I, I think if you gave me a choice of, of live MTTs or, or that t- kind of environment, I'd pick MTTs all the time. But if you, if you give me like deeper stacked environments where there's antis or, or, or some kind of incentive where the game becomes a little bit more complex and it, you're not just like, okay, we're nine-handed, I'm under the gun. I just cannot justify opening a wide range here, uh, that kind of thing. Um, you know, that, that would incentivize me, me to play more cash, I think. So I, I'm excited for whatever developments come up in terms of how uh, sites or, uh, or casinos keep experimenting with, uh, you know, with game formats. Have they experimented? <laughs> are they I experimenting? Um, I, I know some of the major sites are like throwing out, like PokerStars are like throwing out these, these new variations. I know that, I know that like short deck is obviously growing pretty, pretty well, although I'm still not seeing casinos run a substantial number of, of like one, three short deck games or anything like that. It doesn't really happen even here in Vegas. Um, so I, there's some experimentation going on. Uh, one thing that I really would like to see that I think would be a great, uh, a great addition to the game is the short deck anti-structure being used for regular like full deck cash games which is just the structure where everybody antes, everybody pays one ante and the button pays a double ante and there's no blinds. And the, the reason why I think this would be so useful is that it incentivizes a lot more multi-way pots. It makes it harder for players to solve scenarios. It makes it harder for there to be a blueprint strategy that can be employed where you're pretty confident you're going to capture most of the EV in that spot. And uh, it just allows a lot more room for creativity. Um, the the flip side of that is I think short deck suffers because it's not played pot limit. I think the there's no real reason for short deck to be played no limit to to for the way for the way I see it because there's so much advantage to like the spots where it just limps around to the button and you just have jack ten and you just shove for like an infinite number of antes and nobody can ever call really. So like the the pot limit structure the same way. The same way PLO is is pot limit for that exact reason that if you if in PLO if it was no limit you could just get ace ace blank blank and just shove for infinite big blinds and like you just win the pot you know so short deck should play pot limit to me um, but if it did uh, you know maybe we'd see some some different variants come up from that um, but I, I like experimenting with new games I like the idea of of the game evolving and and I hope that sites and casinos keep uh, keep finding new ways to try things out, even if they don't last very long. I love it too. And I love the increased complexity. I love the puzzle mm-hmm. aspect of a game, figuring it out. Yeah, for sure. And it's stimulating. It's mentally stimulating for one. And number two, you hit the nail on the head as far as there being less information. And I think mm-hmm. that the less information that is out there on games, the less you can solve for these types of situations. Just It's just the better, the more the game's going to thrive in the online right. setting. Because mm-hmm. currently, as it stands in the online setting, you know you have this fear of user-assisted um, help. You have a fear of just all these different things, and you have to change it up, right? Like mm-hmm. the game—if the game does get solved within five years 
and you have computers that are able to take, you know, they're able to extract information. They're able to use this information to create exploits on the spot. And then they're, they play super exploitative versus Mm -hmm. user specific strategies. The game's dead. We're done. Right. Like there's no more poker anymore. Right. The only way to combat that is changing the formats and Mm -hmm. making it to where that is not a, not a possibility. So I definitely want to encourage folks out there listening to wade into the waters of uncomfortability when it comes to mm-hmm. different structures. Give these games your action because for the long-term health of poker, it's just going to be something that is absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. The, the, the progression towards an equilibrium is, is always more rapid when there's more information available. And the, the thing about that is that it's not necessarily information uh, in the sense of like people having some idea of what certain concepts are. Like I, I'm not a big believer in the idea that coaching and training are super bad for poker because ultimately it's a discipline where like if you compare it to an, another individual sport, let's say like golf or something, nobody's out there saying like, oh, people should stop teaching golf or tennis because it's getting too hard. And now being a professional golfer is too difficult these days. You know, like nobody's out there being like, Oh, you're killing the game of golf. by coaching <laughs> people had a, had a, had a swing, you know, it, it, it doesn't work. But the thing about poker is that that equilibrium does exist in a hypothetical way. And when we have tools available that can show us exactly what it looks like, that's the, the missing link that makes it problematic when we start progressing more and more towards that equilibrium. The, the thing with golf is there's no, there's no solver for golf, right? So you can teach people golf, but you can't compare a certain golfer to the perfect golfer because you can't calculate what the perfect golfer mathematically looks like or, or whatever. So you, you don't have to worry about us getting close to a, a point of perfect equilibrium in golf or in tennis or something else because you can't calculate what equilibrium is. In poker, the better computing power we have, the more... We're not necessarily we're not necessarily dealing with a scenario where the the perfect equilibrium can be calculated because it's an infinite game. But the we get closer and closer to actually knowing, like on a practical level, what the hypothetical would look like and what types of strategies do appear at equilibrium and what do, what don't. So that's where it does become problematic, and we can't stop people from making a solver. But what we can do is develop forms of the game that are less vulnerable to being solved that include more multi-way pots, that include more elements that complicate the equation mathematically. And one of the reasons why I think tournaments are really good in this regard is that while you can calculate how to play a certain number of big blinds in a certain position at equilibrium, what you can't do is calculate the impact on the next hand or the the next hand after that or or anything like that uh, that goes way beyond, that stretches into what, what impact does it have a hundred hands down the line later in the tournament, you know, because every hand is, is dependent on, on all the others that came before it in tournaments. So that's why I like tournaments. You, you, I don't think you're ever going to get to the point where we have a real solver that actually understands that elements of tournament, that element of tournaments in a deep way. I love that. You know, that's, that's a greatness bomb. And for me in cash games, what I love about solvers Mm -hmm. are that they go with human biases and they yeah. give certainty to folks in spots mm-hmm. that are quantifiably uncertain. And right. it, it gives people this level of comfortability to where like, oh, I'm doing the right thing. I'm making, I have the right strategy. I know it's solver approved mm-hmm. and it's not a good strategy, right? So right. 
basically this is giving folks who are exploiting their tendencies a built-in edge just based on the bias that like, oh, I think this this is my my safety blankie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the misuse of solvers is actually beneficial for the better players. Um, mm-hmm. It's just when you combine these solvers with taking quantifiable data and mm-hmm. you're using it to spit out an exploitative strategy against people like that that's when it gets to the point to like oh this is uh this is sucky <laughs> like when <laughs> when the sol- when you're using a program to take my exact strategy into account and then you're creating a counter strategy that's maximally exploiting mm-hmm. what i'm doing then i'm kind of fucked then i right. can't i can't go to the next level that's why the actual that's why the edge really is in this game and it's uh it's funny i remember you you made a tweet i think recently after the the poker detox trip that you were on about how far ahead of the game nick and the detox guys are and uh and i'm i'm pretty heavily involved with the the tournament side of of detox which does basically a similar thing and um yeah that's one of the reasons why that's one of the reasons why we win as a group it's one of the reasons why the strategy that uses data is so powerful because when when you have proof that someone's making a certain mistake, you can then develop a strategy to target that mistake because you have hard confidence that it is actually taking place. But you also have to you also have to have the adaptability to operate in circumstances where you don't have that hard data. And this is where I think solvers are particularly useful because we can test a hypothesis. It's the it's the only real way that we can take a, a scenario where we say, I think my opponent might be overfolding a little bit in this spot. So with that in mind, let me run this equilibrium and, sh- and see what the amount they should be folding is based on their range. And then if I test this and say, okay, well, he's hypothetically overfolding by this much, then this is what I should do. If he's folding a different amount, then I should do something else. But Maybe the reality is somewhere in between those factors because I can't have perfect certainty about any of these things if I don't know this specific opponent very well. So I can create a strategy that is a, an approximation based on the average of all the different outputs that I've, that I've seen. And you can do that relatively straightforwardly. You can start to examine trends across multiple textures and things like that. So there's a ton of benefit to it, obviously, as a study tool, particularly just because it's a visual tool more than anything else. Like the, the fact that there aren't really very many good visual tools available to people who are looking to, to really boost their, um, their study processes is, is one of the reasons why solvers can be so powerful, because just being able to see a strategy represented graphically for a lot of people who are visual learners, it can be more powerful than having somebody sit there and explain the strategy to you for half an hour. You can just see one visual and you just immediately get it. And that, um, that has a ton of value too, you know? For sure. And like, like with Nick, so Nick did something that's impressive to me personally. He excited me by, as a poker player who's been playing cards for 16 years, by showing me what they're doing, showing me the inside of, of Mobius, and mm-hmm. looking at it and seeing like, oh, some of these things, like some things I intuitively know just based on experience of the player pool and understanding the population, like overfold spots, um, good bluff spots. These are things that like, you know, people were winning at poker before Mobius existed and before mass database analysis, right? right? So like mm-hmm. there are people who are beating the game. However, when you get this, you know, this, uh, you know, 50,000 foot view, of the population and you can see, oh, 
the population's overfolding in this spot. I can prove it with data 5%. Mm-hmm. This is not something that you're intuitively just going to know based on reps because right. it, it's small. So you don't mm-hmm. see it until you get the, the full picture. So Nick, that this is why what they're doing has excited me so much is like, oh, some of the things, so, some, some things just confirm my intuition as far as uh, – you know, inefficiencies in the field. And then some things are like, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that spot because I didn't have the data. Um, and so for people that come to me that are maybe break even or winning cash game players, like I'm sending them Nick Howard's way because Mm -hmm. I believe in the system so much. There's almost nobody. I, I would almost be, there's almost nobody that I would feel comfortable sending people to other than the detox method simply because mm-hmm. I've experienced it myself. I see the power of it. I see what they're doing for folks as far as taking break even players and converting them into like eight big blind per hundred winners. This is like mm-hmm. unfathomable that you can systematically right. churn out these guys, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The The efficiency of the methodology is is something that, uh, you know, ever since I started getting involved with with the company a couple of years ago, it's it's always been impressive. It's always been something that you know i have a ton of respect for for the way nick's been able to put the the company together off uh, off the back of what i'm sure uh, i know you've done podcasts with him in the past i'm sure he's he's spoken at length about how it, it came out of a, a period where he went through some struggles in his own game and and he felt like he he wanted to to try to build uh, an organization or an operation that would take a more objective approach uh, i think the uh, the strength of that is is in the fact that it it really allows for, I think that the strength of data in general is that it allows to have a, a benchmark where you can measure how big or small your actual level of cognitive bias is in a certain context. And what Nick does very powerfully, not just with the company philosophy as a whole, but as a coach in, in times when I've seen him talking with students, is he's very, very good at picking apart somebody's perspective based on how they're interpreting the objectivity of the data. So they can look at hard data that says a certain thing and respond with a certain question or a certain uh, perspective or uh, uh, a certain level of input on, on that data. And Nick will then be able to say, well, the reason, the reason you're saying this or the reason you feel this way is because you're interpreting it like this or you're, you're overcomplicating this part of the equation or, you know, you, this is what you're not seeing or something like this. He has a real ability to get to the heart of where the biases in somebody's thought process lie. And it makes him a, a, a really outstanding coach as a result. We're all biased as human yeah. beings. We're all biased. We all have mindset issues. This is something that just yep. doing, doing the pod, hanging out with that crew, understanding people, we all have mindset issues. If Galfon can get smashed for three weeks and have to take a break, yeah, we all have mindset issues, right? Mm-hmm. So it's understanding where these biases come from and how these biases are leading us away from the quantifiable quote unquote truth. And mm-hmm. like you said, that that's sort of the brilliance is it's hard to argue with data. It's hard to right. argue with with data. You can say like, oh, but my intuition says, well, yeah, doesn't matter. Right? Why is your mm-hmm. intu- intuition taking you away from what the data is telling you? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a very powerful thing. Yeah, absolutely. How did you get involved with Solve for Why? And so you're, you're, I didn't actually know that you were 
a detox guy before this oh. conversation. I didn't know you were involved with detox, um, but I did know you were involved with Solve for Why. How'd that come about? Um, basically, the two actually are very linked in that when I first when I first moved to Vegas, in fact, I need to back up before that. So 2016, uh, I was I was still on the roster at Tournament Poker Edge at that point, and I was doing a podcast with uh, Derek Tenbush, Kill, Killing Bird, on uh, on Twitch and on, on Twitter. He uh, he and I had uh, Matt Berkey on as a guest because uh, the uh, he had been I think more more active based on a, uh, in the community based on a, a blog post he'd made that had gone viral I think or something like that. And uh, we had him on as a guest, and we started talking about some ideas related to what Solve for Why was, because he had just set the company up at that point. They were pretty new. So uh, we started talking about coaching philosophies and things like that. And then when the time came that uh, 2017 rolled around, I was in Mexico, uh, Bucky and I got talking a little more about um, some of the ideas that I had discussed with him in terms of uh, coaching methods and and different ways to to sort of enhance the learning process for certain students. And um, it end, it basically ended up with uh, you know him deciding that it that hiring me for for software would be a good move, and um, we we started working on developing some content, and I ended up basically coming on as like a you know, a long term addition to the roster, I guess. Um, once the company expanded to the point where they wanted to start running tournament academies and things like that, so I've been pretty heavily involved in developing content for for software, obviously for quite a while now. And then when it comes to detox, I actually met Nick through Berkey not long after I moved to Vegas. So I, I got invited to a, a Solve for Why, like just a, a dinner that we went to, like the whole team just kind of got together and went out for dinner in Vegas because this was, uh, I had sort of just come on board to make the first piece of content that I made. And we, it was a chance for me to kind of meet everybody and just a, a social thing. And Nick was there. And, uh, and it's funny because when we were in, we were on the detox team retreat in uh, in Malaga uh, in in Spain in in January. Nick Nick remembered Nick was like talking to the guys about how he and I had had met, and Nick uh, Nick framed it to them as like I showed up at this dinner, and I, and I was like <laughs> I had to like call him out on that because I didn't just like show up. I was invited, and he was the one who showed up. Like he just he just like was he was just there. He was the only one there who wasn't in some way part of the Soulful Y team. So like I had to call Nick out on that against the, you know, <laughs> whatever, for whatever reason he decided to frame it in a different way. But in any, in any event, Nick and I met and we started talking about my background in, uh, in languages. I studied languages in college. I'm i I'm a humanities guy by trade rather than a math guy. And, um, some ideas I'd been kicking around at the time related to some, some concepts I'd come into contact with from, from, my linguistics background, uh, the, the, how, how they might relate to poker. And tell me, um, tell me these, this okay. is super interesting. <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, uh, to finish this story just briefly, yeah. uh, Nick and I basically, we got talking about some of this stuff and that it kind of snowballed in the same way where, uh, Nick wanted to explore possibilities of having me work with detox to try to enhance what he was doing in terms of coaching and kind of went down a similar path. So, um, for the last two, three years, honestly, almost now um i've been basically splitting my time between detox solve why coaching playing uh it's kind of been my rotation and um it's been great to work with both nick and and berkey because they're good friends and uh they they have very contrasting backgrounds so getting to bounce those ideas around with the two of them is a really really cool thing um 
Not just backgrounds, but, yeah. but methodologies too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like very different methods, very different backgrounds. Um, but they get along really well. They 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 have a lot of uh, philosophies and perspectives in common, but they obviously have two very different starting points: live versus online. And it's uh, it's really interesting to to be in discussions with with those guys. So, yeah. So you want to go back to the linguistics thing? I do, but okay. I, I will cool. say too that like you know, you're, you're talking about the power of connection, right? And this is something yeah. that I've learned from the podcast is, mm-hmm. you know, I got connected to Berkey through Jack Lasky. I uh-huh. didn't actually know who Berkey was when Jack told me because sure. I, as a cash game online anonymous grinder, I'm mm-hmm. not on poker Twitter. I'm really not on right. forums. I'm not keeping track of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it was when I had to venture out of my little hole that I, uh, that I got in touch with Jack and then Jack sent me to Berkey. And then I started like, you know, doing my research and looking at mm-hmm. stuff and I'm like, Oh, this is actually kind of a, a big deal in the poker world. And then Berkey sent me to, you know, he connected me with Nick Howard, which brought Nick Howard to Atlanta and, and solidified right. that connection. And it's just, mm-hmm. you can see the power of connection at play for folks who love poker for folks yeah. who are obsessed and have a common goal. Right. I would say that Nick, one of the reasons why Nick appeals to me so much as a coach and as a content creator in poker is that I can tell that he's a good guy. I can tell Mm -hmm. that he cares about reducing suffering in poker by giving people a quantifiable, implementable strategy. And this comes Mm -hmm. off very strong. As somebody who has uh, dealt with their fair share of bullshit in the poker industry and they're their fair share of folks that are like, Oh, here's the answers. This is mm-hmm. right. This is standard move on, just implement and you'll just print money. It's like, mm-hmm. no, this is not good enough for me. This has never been good yeah. enough for me. These, these hard strategies. So like, mm-hmm. that's why Nick personally has resonated with me so much as a poker yeah. player, as a poker coach. Now I do want to hear the connection between language and poker. Sure. Okay. So the the general idea is that we're in poker. We're operating under a game. We're we're operating in a game that's that's a mathematical construct, right? It's it's the 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 cards in a deck of cards represent numerical values. But in order to mutually agree on some kind of framework for what the rules of this game are, we need language. We need to explain how the game works. So inherently, the game is a math construct that requires language for us to have any ability to actually play it against one another because we have to be able to explain how it's played. And on top of that, we then get layers upon layers of terminology and strategy that are placed on top of one another to where there's a whole uh, lexicon now of, of poker terminology that people use very commonly without thinking twice about what it exactly means, because we know that we know what a three bet is. We know what a check raise is, et cetera, et cetera. But these are terms that describe mathematical phenomena. They, a three bet is a term that describes a change in the mathematical conditions of the game. And when we develop an ability to understand not just what these mathematical uh, concepts are and how they can be described in language. So what, you know, for example, like, developing the idea of a, a polarized range. Someone at some point, there was a there was a time, I don't know when this was, but there was at certain at a certain point, there was the first time anybody ever talked about a polarized range in poker. In fact, you could even go further and you could say at some point there was a first occasion when someone even talked about a range. 
because at some point someone had to develop that concept. And all of these these terminologies, they influence the way we perceive the game. They influence the the understanding that we have. And in the same way that our language framework influences the the way we perceive the world as a whole, whether we speak English as a first language or some other language, the the language that we use to talk about poker influences the way we perceive the game as well. And what you'll notice is that players who are less experienced have a language framework that uses very different words to describe certain phenomena uh, than other players do. So for example, like telling a bad beat story, telling a bad beat story is something that someone who's an inexperienced poker player might very commonly do, but someone who is a more experienced player who has experienced bad beats thousands of times now has a different way of narrating the, the, the hand history of a hand that happened such that it doesn't become all about the bad beat. It becomes about the way you actually talk about the strategy of the spot, let's say. And they tend to have a lot more self-awareness of, of the concepts that, that are, that are kind of in the back of your mind when you tell a bad beat story. No one wants to be the guy who's telling bad beat stories all the time. So inherently, we have a, more of a resistance to, to using certain kinds of emotionally charged language when we talk about these things. So there's, there's a lot of connections. Um, I think ultimately, the, the thing that's most interesting to me and the thing that is very hard to ever come close to proving with data is the idea that there are a lot of aspects of the, the language framework that someone uses that actually influence the way that they, they play. So for example, my hypothesis would be that there's something about, let's say, Brazilian culture that, or, Brazil, or Portuguese as a language that influences Brazilian players to play a certain, a certain way in comparison to other players. There's a certain element of cultural and linguistic uh, background to why, let's say, German players are perceived to be more like rigid and more like tight, aggressive guys. Like they're not perceived to be like the crazy loose, aggressive guys who are playing all the hands. There's all these cultural aspects and linguistic aspects behind how these commonalities between player types develop. And I think a lot of it largely has to do with the actual structures of the languages that they, that they speak. German is a language that operates via a, a different kind of a, uh, a grammatical framework to, to how English or French or Spanish might operate. And so there is, to my mind at least, some evidence to suggest that that language framework might actually be an easier one through which somebody can be explained the game than it would be in English. It might be easier to teach a German person to play good poker than it is to teach an English speaker to play good poker. You can't prove it. But there's, there's some evidence in linguistics to suggest that the, the more formulaic mathematical way that German operates as a language uh, in that there's, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of literally adding one word to another word to create a new word uh, in German. That, to my mind, um, seems to connect quite well with the, the type of logical mathematical thinking that you need in order to learn poker. So this is my hypothesis as to why the Germans always crush. This is genius. Like this, <laughs> th these are greatness bombs. I can see why Berkey and Nick Howard scooped you up because it's something Thank that I, like not coming from a linguistic background, it makes so much sense. Like mm -hmm. I feel like my mind has just been blown as far as <laughs> how people think about the game. Like 
it's never occurred to me. It's never even occurred to me to analyze the language in which I learn poker and discuss poker strategy and try to mm-hmm. improve that language. So this mm-hmm. is where like the terms, you know, formation or a volatile yeah. player. This is this yeah. is where that language develops straight from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the uh, the the general the general idea that I try to apply as a coach is to 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 think about it in in the sense that the the most straightforward way because we're we're because we're accustomed to uh, learning new concepts through language. Or, I mean, if it's a more practical thing, we learn it through doing. But in poker, you can't really you can't really learn kinesthetically very easily. We learn through language for the most part. So, if you if you have a math concept that you're trying to teach to somebody, the best way is to think about what kind of language framework would most easily encapsulate what I'm trying to get across in terms of the math. And this is where the idea of like polarized ranges comes from, right? Because what we're talking about when we talk about a polarized range is a range that has either very high equity or very low equity. And that's a mathematical concept. That's a, the distribution of equity in that range is what we're referring to when we call it polarized. But when we use that word, now we have a singular terminology that we can use in any context that refers to that same mathematical concept. And we can do the same thing with other terminologies. Now, there's a lot of areas where it becomes kind of murky because there's not always a good word to describe a certain concept. But the more we can develop a language framework to understand the strategy that we're trying to implement, then the easier it is to actually mathematically define what it is we're, we're going to be attempting to do. So one of, the, one of the things that Nick and I were first working on together was trying to optimize the way in which the strategy concepts in the detox strategy were expressed to people. So optimize the ways in which we explain the, the, the strategy, optimize the ways in which we use language to actually communicate it. Because the, the strategy itself is obviously very, very effective. But if it can't be communicated in a way where not just players who speak English as their first language, but players who speak any language can understand this strategy, then it's much harder for a company to scale and hire players from all over the world when their strategy can't be understood by a, a, someone who's not a native English speaker, for example. Um, and that's something that uh, you know Nick and I have talked uh, talked a lot about. Developing a good language framework for certain mindset concepts is something that Nick and I have worked a ton on. Um, developing a, a general uh, overarching framework to explain certain types of mindset flaws to to Nick's students. He he and I have gone back and forth, uh, you know, talking about this stuff and making making videos for the students on it for for maybe two two plus years now. So the the development of a complex but concise language framework through which we can understand the game for me is like one of the most important factors in anybody's development. Because if you can, if you can take concepts that exist in math that a solver would be able to, to show you, and then you can explain it in language that is easy to understand and doesn't require a player to actually take the time to do all the solves because they intuitively get it when the language is explained to them. That's the, the, the route to rapid improvement, but it's what so many coaches miss because they get wrapped up in the micro and they don't think about how can I express a broad concept very concisely using the right terminology. So being efficient with your yeah. language, creating, yeah. creating language that is extremely efficient. Right. And we're, we're naturally efficient with language when, as, as a whole when it comes to just, just generally as human beings. Like if you think about these days, Maybe 50 years ago, anytime you wanted to tell somebody 
like what your plans are for the day. Like some, if somebody asks you like, what are you doing today? You might, you might say like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this or I am, I'm going to this place or whatever. But these days it's like when we're texting, you don't say I'm at the beginning of the sentence. It's like, what, what are you, what are you doing today? It's like, Oh, I'm, or you just say like going to going to work or something like you don't, you just say going right. Or uh, in other languages, it works the same way. In Spanish, these, day, these days, instead of saying, like, I want something by saying, yo quiero, whatever, you just would say quiero, because it's implied that you would say I at the beginning of the sentence. So it, the, the same thing operates in, in basically every language worldwide. Language is an efficient paradigm. It, it's constantly, over time, uh, over even decades or centuries at times, it, it is constantly making itself more and more concise and efficient and allowing us to expand the number of concepts we're able to talk about by you know, basically reducing the number of overall terminologies and words we use to, to describe them. And the same thing is happening in poker. The same thing happens when we eliminate certain terms. You know, these days, like, you don't hear people talking so much about like, semi-bluff anymore. You don't, you don't really hear that word because now it's all just a question of like, what parts of your range are you betting and what parts are you not? Uh, and some hands aren't really a bluff or a value bet at a given point because like they, they don't fall into either clear category, but they're still a bet. And we may not describe them as a semi bluff these days. It doesn't, we don't tend to divide things clearly in that way. We tend to have some hands that just bet because they kind of just have to bet or like they're just a, they play better as a bet, but we can't quite clearly define what category they fall into. So as time goes by, we develop new terminologies, we throw away old ones, and, uh, and the, the language that we use to talk about the game evolves, and it becomes a little bit easier in some ways to quickly grasp certain concepts, but then at the same time, the high-level stuff can be very obscure, and uh, some, some concepts aren't easily understood until we are able to come up with a very concise way of actually naming them and, and explaining them in that sense. Do you think this is one of the reasons why online poker evolves at a much higher speed versus live poker? Um, I think it has something to do with it. I think the the fact that there's a, a greater volume of, it's almost like there's a greater volume of communication being exchanged around online poker in that there's more people talking on forums. There's more people talking around, you know, on Twitter, there's strategy content being shared all the time. There's more information in that sense where the, the, the dialogue is more immediate in terms of how strategy evolves. But at the same time, I also think that largely the reason why online poker evolves quicker is because of the demographics that are associated with it right now. And I think that the because the, because the vast majority of people who play a substantial amount of live poker uh, are, well, okay. So let me, let me back up a second. In terms of live poker, the, the most important determining factor is the fact that with live poker, a casino has to be able to make enough money from running a certain game to justify running the game. So the games have to be at a certain stake or higher in order for the casino to rake enough to actually justify doing it. So what that means is you're never going to get games in a casino where you can buy in for 20 bucks. You're not going to, you're not going to have 50 cent dollar tables or anything like that, even in a casino. And what that does is it pushes live poker traffic into being heavily dominated by people who have a lot of disposable income, which is largely people in the age brackets of like 40 plus. And 
that's always going to segment the live game from the online game in that the it's we're never going to see a society develop where the large majority of wealth is possessed by people under the age of 40. It's just not going to happen because people accumulate more wealth as they get older. So live poker is always going to be in that category where the people who play it are people who are more casual about it because they're not necessarily planning to do it for a living at some later point. They're just doing it for fun. And when this happens, there's a a much lower volume of like continuous discussion around it that goes on because these players, maybe they, you know, they see each other every now and again, they, you know, they talk about what's going on in their lives, but they don't go away and like grind the forums for four hours a night (laughs) talking about hand histories because they, you know, they're casual poker players. And and this is the, this is what live poker facilitates as a whole because of just the, the fundamental way it works. And then online is the exact opposite online. It's very, very cheap for, a site to operate more and more games and they can run incredibly low stakes very cheaply without any substantial increase in overheads. So online is always going to allow low stakes poker to exist. And it's always as a result going to be primarily focused on people who spend a lot of time online and who don't have as much disposable income. So the, the evolution there from people who spend a lot more time discussing strategy, people who maybe are looking to be a professional poker player at some point in the future, it's always going to, that's always going to be uh, some part of the online environment, which is going to speed the evolution of the game up. The, The key for me is how do we actually allow there to be a coherent transition path available from online to live? Because guys who reach the highest stakes online will eventually want to transition to playing the highest stakes live if they can, because it's a natural progression. The highest stakes live are much higher than the highest stakes online. And the games Um, are easier by nature. Yeah. I mean, if like you can play, you know, 200, 400 online against Linus, or you can play 500, a thousand live in, in, you know, Ivy's room at the Aria or something where there's probably two huge whales in the game, you know, which game would you prefer to be in? Um, So the guys who progress beyond the stakes where, the, the online traffic just doesn't exist. They're going to want to move up. But geographically speaking, there's only several places in the world where those games actually run, right? So we have this gray area where there's a lot of traffic around the game online. There's a lot of discussion around the game. The strategy is constantly evolving, but there's kind of a ceiling on how far you can go or what stakes you can play for. And then with live, that it's almost the inverse where there's much less strategy talk going on and there's much less information exchange between players but you can't play low you can only play above a certain stake and you also can't put in substantial volume so you need to have a huge bankroll to withstand playing a substantial amount of live poker so we have this this huge segmentation of the poker economy that isn't there's never really going to be any substantial crossover because it just can't work that way because of live casinos needing to you know, justify running more games by, uh, and because they need more staff. So the way it goes in terms of the learning process, I think is that the, the online game is going to continue evolving faster than the live game always. And that's why we need going back to the earlier discussion. It's why we need new formats of the game. It's why we need the game to be evolving in itself. Like the actual rules of the game need to change consistently over time new game formats need to come up. Like we need to have more emphasis put on like mixed games. We need to be 
growing new formats of the game altogether. I, I always love whenever online series have like these crazy formats, like they'll have like a six card PLO knockout tournament, you know, like I, I love that stuff because the more of those tournaments you run, the more opportunity there is for the playing field to be kind of leveled in a sense and recreational players to get in there and maybe make a big score because the, the edge that the pros have is neutralized. And there's going to be a lot of people who don't like that idea because they want games to run where they can be confident that they have a huge edge. But to me, the sustainable way for this game to operate is to continue producing games where the edges are not necessarily easily defined mathematically so that it's not as easy to just know that you have a, a, a five big blinds per hundred win rate and just say, I'm going to play a million hands this year and I'm going to make X amount of dollars um, to actually put people in a position where you can't calculate what your win rate is. So you just kind of have to back yourself to make good decisions and trust that you'll be profitable because the more pros are kind of forced to do that, you can still make money, but the games are not going to be restricted in nature to the point where they eventually die off and the wrecks have no, no incentive to, to keep playing. So the, the learning environment of, of live versus online, um, it's very connected to the economic environment and the, the language aspect of it too plays into that because it all just relates to how quickly people learn, I guess. Yeah. And I guess the, the original, the original question and all of that, by the way, is, is, you know, is brilliant the way that you, have obviously thought deeply about this um, from an economic standpoint and why things exist the way that they do. When you have a database, when you have a yeah. HUD, when you're collecting information, just by nature of there being a holdo manager that exists, they've right. had to use language in their way mm-hmm. to define a continuation bet, a yeah, exactly, a four bet, right? And so this mm-hmm. language from the online world is just natural to people that. Yeah look at hands, look at their database, mm-hmm. post hands online versus in the live realm, it's not as natural because right. there's no hold manager you can look at to see your fold to four bet range, right? Right, like it's, exactly. It's quantified all the language. And mm-hmm. it, I, I, while you're, you know, I got this hilarious image in my mind of people who are playing online that have a, mm-hmm. They're economically handicapped. We'll call it that. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're poor. They're younger mm-hmm. and poorer than old yeah. people who have accumulated lots of money. And you can see how, at like a fifty no limit or a hundred no limit stake, you can kind of see how there's a lot more people that semi know what they're doing mm-hmm. versus a stake of like five hundred or one k no limit, where you have people that have more disposable income they just go and play online and they sit higher stakes. So mm-hmm. they're naturally rec players. Like this is where the rec players come from at the higher stake. They're yeah. just older amateur type players with disposable income. Right. Absolutely. There's, um, there's, there's not a, there's not a lot of incentive for somebody to recreationally go play five cent, 10 cent if they have substantial disposable income, because it might be fun, but if they, if they're at the point where they're, they're playing five cent, 10 cent because it's fun. Some of those players will literally go choose to play play money instead. Like some of them will not even bother to actually make a deposit. Like they, they won't even, because if they're literally just playing because they would, it's the same as like playing, I don't know, playing some game on their phone. Like if it's the same to that as that to them, then uh, they'll just play play money a lot of the time. And yet 
the players who actually do care about the money, in many cases, they will choose to, to go, like you say, for, for higher stakes in certain contexts. So I think that it's, a, it's actually a really interesting time to be having this, this conversation because we're obviously going to see a huge shift in the poker economy uh, over the next few months in terms of live poker basically not being available. And as that happens, we're going to have to try to figure out how much of the live poker economy is actually shifting online and where is that money going to be invested. The money that's going onto the major sites these days, um, you know, it certainly seems like in the short term, there's been a big explosion in, in uh, tournament player pools and things like that in, uh, in Europe uh, on the major sites from what I'm hearing from the detox guys over the last week or two. And, and we may see that continue in the U.S. We may see that the U.S. player pools are going to grow substantially over the next few months. But the flip side of it is if we enter an economic downturn that's as substantial as it seems like it might be, then it may hurt poker overall. So uh, there's a lot up in the air right now in terms of how those, the live and the online player pools are going to actually like relate to each other. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of unknowns. Hundred percent, lots of unknowns about what's going to happen in the world, and yeah. it seems weird to me. It has seemed weird to me the narrative that you know poker, online poker is going to be booming. When mm-hmm. I, I I do have in the back of my mind, but people are getting crushed, so they have right. le- less disposable income naturally. Exactly. So, yeah, maybe it's booming at like ten dollar tournaments, but is it going to be booming at like two k no limit on on right. admission? I mean, like, it won't be. It, it, it just seems so unlikely that it will be, but. Like from my perspective as a tournament player, um, that that would be the area where it's most likely to grow. Those low stakes tournaments just having massive fields, hundred dollar buy ins having like, I mean, what did they get for the Sunday Million last Sunday? The biggest special edition, they got like almost a twenty million prize pool. Like it's absolutely insane. Like ninety thousand players. So that that kind of that kind of stuff wouldn't be happening without everybody being stuck in their homes. But at the same time, the I, I mean, I'm very at this point like. I'm in the same camp of of thinking like in the short term, online is booming, but six months from now, we just don't know because it will most likely be very variable from country to country. It's very possible that large parts of Europe won't be affected that badly, but also large parts of Europe will be. And the, it's going to depend on what role those countries play in the poker economy as to what that does to the poker economy as a whole. It, similarly, the US is likely to be hit extremely hard. And when that happens, the US poker economy, since most of that is based around live poker anyway, that's going to transform very dramatically as well. And it may, it, it's possible that it could be for the better if, let's say, this starts to be the, the impetus for certain people who have been obstructing the development of online poker in the US to kind of get out of the way and allow it to happen. But that seems unlikely in the short term. It may take a couple of years even for that to happen. So like if we're about to enter a big economic downturn, it's going to hit everybody in every way. And it's, of course, it's especially hitting live poker because we can't even play for probably the next six months or so. But when it, when live poker comes back, we, we don't have the ability right now to anticipate what traffic is going to be like. Card rooms may be dead for a while. Casinos here in Vegas right now are closed and they may not reopen for quite a while. They want, even once they do reopen, they may not reopen the poker rooms for a while. So there's so much unpredictability, uh, particularly in the U.S. But I, I think the the saving grace, I suppose, as someone like myself who 
is fairly comfortable playing either live or online is like, I don't have any problem making the transition back to playing more online. While I think there are some players who are like really resistant to it. There are some players who really hate the idea of playing online consistently because they don't trust the sites or they don't want to play against bots or whatever. Um, and there's a valid concerns, especially from recreational players. So there's uh there's a lot of reasons to think that maybe the online boom might not be quite as long-lasting as we would want it to be. I don't know if the recs are super concerned about bots. I don't know. I guess, the, the, okay. the, I, I don't know. It, it's a hard thing to quantify, right? Is that mm-hmm. like, there are a lot of recs that don't even really know what a HUD is or what it does um, yeah. or database. So there's this like massive knowledge gap. I would say mm-hmm. it's got to be tough for the the live pros that have been yeah. li- live proing around for like the last five or six years because mm-hmm. In my experience playing live, my game is not evolving super quick. Um, uh-huh. I'm not staying on top of things. I actually feel like <laughs> it's not that I'm getting worse, but I'm not mm-hmm. improving at the right. rate that I otherwise would be. Mm-hmm. So this this factor that live pros are just not going to be as good as they once were online or haven't kept up with the times. They're going to have leaks. You know, they're going to need to improve and evolve. And speaking from somebody that went through Black Friday and experienced mm-hmm. it, there was a three-year stretch where I didn't play anywhere online because I didn't mm-hmm. trust anything. Like I, I did not trust the system. It was like uh, you know, kind of like PTSD of like yeah. this. This can be taken away from me at any moment. Live poker can't. So I'm going to dive into live and I'm going to play bigger mm-hmm. than I was playing online. So yeah, I would say that yeah, the, the live live pros are probably going to be in for it they're they're gonna have a learning curve like they're gonna have to battle and i'm not sure Mm -hmm. like if this lasts a year two years uh, like nobody who nobody's gonna make it out alive like it's gonna be a massive i I can't even it's been like a few weeks and people are losing their damn minds i can't imagine Mm -hmm. three months i mean yeah i mean the 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 consequences in terms of like if there are if there are guys who make a living playing live who don't want to play online for whatever reason or who can't win online who like are uh, beating live games at like let's say maybe the, in some environments there are probably guys who beat two five or five ten who won't beat the games heavily enough online to actually make a living those guys will just quit poker and there will be fewer pros there will be fewer like marginal winning pros in the environment and what that may what that may do at certain stakes is actually increase rates increase win rates for the online pros that still exist because if there are still recreational players who have some ability to play online and they're losing, but they don't really care, then uh, there will be fewer sort of slightly above break-even players in the environment to, to cannibalize some of that, that profit, you know? So the, the online environment is going to divide, I think pretty hard in the coming maybe year or so to where you have the players who are good enough to beat the stakes that are high enough that they can make a living in their respective country and then you have the players who are recreationals, but the the players who were previously like marginally winning at let's say at live, or they were marginally winning online, but now when a bunch of the good live pros have to quit and play online, now they're not even winning online anymore. The 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 pool is kind of going to divide, I think, uh, and it might it might become a little bit more like some of the the live high high roller events that you see where you get a a field of like 20 I got, guys. I got and, this, Matt. It's polarized. 
It, yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's a, <laughs> you got the crushers and you got the you got the whales and the crushers and nothing in between. Yeah, you got you got like a like these live tournaments of these three hundred Ks or whatever where you get like twenty guys and it's basically two guys that are just drawing dead to win and everyone's just chopping up their six hundred K between the rest of the guys that enter. You know, it's um kind of a crazy environment like that. I don't I won't get that extreme, obviously, but like there'll be a, a slight division between the the player pool is what I would expect to happen because you'll see you'll see some good live pros shift to online and win. You'll see some bad live pros or mediocre live pros shift to online and lose or break even. And then you'll see some rep, the recs who were losing live. If they play the same stakes online or even somewhat close, well now the medium to higher stakes online just got a lot better. Yeah, so absolutely. If, if there's a, if there's a guy who's playing two five live and losing, but he doesn't care because he makes a lot of money elsewhere, then that particular guy going online and playing two five is great for the economy because that's gonna that's gonna really affect two five quite a lot. And I would say that by and large, two five two five regs that are scraping by being two five are likely not gonna be able to survive playing two five online. Yeah. Um, you know, they're gonna get they're in for a world of pain sitting at a table with uh, four regs that are have like twelve to fifteen percent three bet and are just putting them in spots they're very unfamiliar with. Right. And that's not to say that none of them lack the capability to study and learn and get better and beat those games. But in the short term, it's going to be a huge adjustment. Yeah, there's right? a learning so curve. The, exactly. There's just a huge learning curve. And there's also a learning curve in in not just in the, the actual technical sense, but there's a learning curve of what it takes to to be successful playing online for a living where you have to manage your sessions the right way. You have to have the right schedule to play. You have to be online at the times where the most traffic is available. All of these things that, you know, for, for live pros, maybe it's a little bit simplistic where you, if you're going to play live cash for a living, you basically sit down at the time in the evening when all the drunk guys start to arrive and you don't leave until the drunk guy is gone, you know, but online it, it's, you, it's, you, if you want to put in volume, you have to be more structured because your, your system has to be sustainable to the point where you, you're able to play the maximum number of tables without decreasing your win rate and like just be able to, to balance it depending on what site you're playing on and all of these different factors. So there's a lot of variables there. And one of the, the major ones that comes to mind is energy consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, energy consumption online, you're going to be consuming a shitload more energy than you are live. Like I, yeah. can, I can sit down and play 10 hours live and it's like, okay, I'm, I'm focusing on one table at a time, not huge uh, processing power being put into play playing four or six maxes at the same time, much more processing power, much more mental fatigue. I saw Berkey tweeted a few days ago that mm-hmm. he he played 12 hours online and just yeah. felt absolutely fried, right? Yeah. This is not coincidental. This this is the way mm-hmm. that online poker works. You're, you're making so many more decisions that you're just using more processing power. So if you're not physically fit, if you don't take care of yourself from a nutrition standpoint, like you mm-hmm. absolutely have to be structured. You have right. to, because like I've said it a million times on this podcast that I used to think I was weak because I could only play three hours at a time. I would say, mm-hmm. why, why can't I do this? Why, why does my brain feel like mush playing three hours at a time when other guys can just play like 10 hours straight? I, I never could grasp it until I finally realized that it's a processing issue. Mm-hmm. Like when you play high intensity poker, multiple tables for three hours straight, 
most human beings are going to break down. You, yeah. you know, you, you either get one of two things. One of two things happen. You either break down and you feel it or you can serve mental energy by playing worse so that you can sustain right. that level over a longer period of time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yo, Coach Brad here, and I have a very simple question. How would you like an opportunity to join Nick Howard's crew at Poker Detox? This is a chance for you to have world-class coaching and hop on the fast track to destroying online cash and MTTs without risking your own money or enduring years of pain trying to figure things out on your own. I recently had the good fortune to go behind the scenes with Nick and his detox crew to experience for myself their training methods, and quite frankly, I was blown away and have never seen anything like it. The Poker Detox system is both powerful enough to supercharge your game and simple enough to implement hand after hand. In the last year, they have verifiably fast-tracked multiple players from 50 no limit all the way up through 1k no limit and on average their players are winning eight big blinds per hundred on non-app sites across all stakes with the majority of volume being played at 200 through 500 no limit however this opportunity is not for wannabes or lazy bums this is for folks who are obsessed and want to do the work so that they can reach their full potential as poker players to qualify, you must be able to provide a break-even or winning graph in cash games or MTTs over the last three to six months and be willing to play full-time. To take the next step, all you have to do is send me that graph via email, brad at enhanceyouredge.com, or send a direct message to at enhanceyouredge on Twitter, and I'll personally guide you through the next step in the process. Once again, that email is brad at enhanceyouredge.com and the Twitter handle is at enhanceyouredge. Thank you for your time. I'd love to hear from you soon. And now, back to the show. It's, it's funny you, you mention it that way, though, because I think for, for me as someone who came through, who started out online, and I was like, I was multi-tabling from the very beginning, like when I first started out playing, I was so into playing, I wanted to just play more tables. So I was like 10 tabling, like five cent, 10 cent when I first started out, you know, and I got to the point where I was mass tabling MTTs like pretty consistently. And I, the, the most tables I ever had running at one time was like 42. I, I, I was 42 tabling one time and it was terrible. I had like a huge losing day. It was of a terrible course. idea, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, of course. But like I had, I, I, I had, uh, winning days, like days where I did really well, where I would be like 24 to 30 tabling for most of the day playing tournaments. And that's with like 10 hour sessions, like five minute breaks every hour and that's it. And so I, I got accustomed to that very quickly. And, and that was something that I, I'm sure that there were decisions that I made suboptimally in, in that. But just the fact that I wasn't, it didn't feel uncomfortable to me to play that length of time, partly because I grew up as a kid playing like 12 hour video game sessions, I guess. But that didn't feel that uncomfortable. But when I made the transition to live and, and even still now I am absolutely dead after a day of playing live. <laughs> and the, and the reason is not because it's actually a mental thing. It's more of a physical thing because when I'm playing online, like I'm just like relaxed, I'm at my computer, I'm in my chair, whatever. Like it's, it's pretty straightforward. But when I'm playing live, every hand that I'm playing first, first of all, I'm like paying very close attention to what everyone's doing around me. But every hand that I'm playing, there's a certain 
there's a certain kind of like intensity that gets switched on when you're in the middle of playing a live hand because you know that the other guy's looking at you. You know that the table is observing what's going on. And at the same time, you're also putting a tiny amount of, or not a tiny amount, but you're putting a lot of effort into like keeping your posture stable and keeping your movements very consistent so you're not giving away a bunch of towels and things like that. And that process for me, alongside when, when, you, when you add it all on top of like sitting on probably really uncomfortable chairs most of the time all day, if I, if I play day one of a live tournament and I make it through day one, like at the end, I'm like, I'm excited, but I'm super tired because a 12 hour session of playing live, even with breaks and the dinner break and everything, like it's really, it's partly mentally draining, but it's also physically draining for me. Whereas online it's mentally draining, but because there's almost no physical drain, because I just get to chill at my computer, like I'm used to it. I, I actually find it easier in that sense. Although, like you say, there's retaining the quality of decisions is the the x factor that is tough right where you can play a 12-hour session but playing just as well as you did at the end as you did at the beginning is like incredibly tough do you think there's a difference in this sense because there's there's one variable between that Mm -hmm. separates you and me and that's i'm playing cash and you're playing tournaments yeah do you think this this could be a, a big factor yeah, I think it is. Uh, honestly, when I play cash, if I, I have played a reasonable amount of online cash at different times, but when I do, I, I play like 90 minutes or two hours and then I'll take like a half hour break and then I'll come back to it. Um, and I think that is just, that's just necessary for me. So I, I definitely think you're right that uh, if you were playing cash, if you're playing a lot of deep stack spots, it's just super hard to, to play a multi-table session for a long period. Um, but the... I think as a tournament player, not only is is online different in that you just kind of play for 55 minutes, take a five minute break, et cetera. But you also, uh, the everything gets more important as you go through the session, right? So you have more of like an adrenaline injection when you get deep in a tournament and you you can focus more because it matters more. So there's that. But also live, it's it's very much an inversion as well, where the the reason live tournaments, I think, are more of a grind than live cash is because live cash, every hand you're basically playing very similar circumstances. And you're, if you lose a pot, you just rebuy up to your buy-in amount and you're back to square one. And it can be tough to recover from a big, bad beat, let's say, but you can easily go take 15 minutes right after the hand and like, just go chill, go, go somewhere, get a coffee, whatever. But in a live tournament, like, if you take, if you have a hundred big blinds and you take a bad beat and now you have 20 big blinds and you're approaching the bubble or something like you can't just get up and leave the table. I mean, you, you can, but like you're giving away money. You're just handing money to everybody else at the table if you do that. So live tournaments put you in a mindset where you're the competitive element of it is much more immediate because it's not just like a casual get up and leave kind of thing. It's more like, once you sit down, you're there and your job is to be focused for the entirety of the time you're at that table. And there are going to be changing circumstances everywhere. And so you have to be like paying attention to everybody's stack size in maybe a more detailed way than you would with cash. Because with cash, it's like, there's not going to be a guy to your left with 20 big blinds. So, you know, you, when you, when someone opens and you have pocket sixes, you just call, but in tournaments, it's like, okay, I have this hand. Okay, what what's the stack to my left? What's the stack to his left? Who's that guy who just sat down who has all the chips? Does he look like he's going to be playing really aggro? Like 
all of these different considerations in tournaments that maybe don't exist that often in live cash. And so I find live tournaments to be draining partly because of that. Whereas I think with online, definitely the, the cash and tournament division makes it easier to grind tournaments and, and super hard to grind long cash sessions. If I was <laughs> playing cash, I would play, I, I would, I would limit myself like two hours a session and then just take a break and go back to it. Cause once you get a break and you go back to it, that's fine. But if you just try to play like eight hours straight, like that just seems unsustainable to me. Yeah. This is the same. This is my approach. Take, mm. uh, take a couple hours, take a break and come back. I think of it as like reps at the gym. You know, you can, right. you can do five reps bench and then you can't possibly do another one. And mm-hmm. then if you take a minute break, you can pump out five more. Right. So the break exactly. is, the break is right. super important in the middle mm-hmm. there. And, yeah. uh, there's also this, this feeling in tournaments of it being like every decision needs to be maximized right? because, mm-hmm. you know, there's a volume issue, there's variance. And if you punt, you don't, you can't just rebuy into the tournament. Mm-hmm. Well, actually you can now, <laughs> nowadays <laughs> you can. And in a lot of situations, historically, maybe you couldn't, but mm-hmm. you know, there's this, this need to maximize every, every single mm-hmm. spot, every single decision and see all the information. Whereas like you said in cash, yeah, there's definitely spots that come up that you have to maximize to be successful, um, but they're not as frequent. And some things mm-hmm. are just cut and dry, like UTG opens and you got pocket sixes. Like, yeah, you just call. Like, there's no right. no real thought process or or anything mm-hmm. beyond that. So, I do have some uh, some lightning round questions here okay. that uh, I haven't actually gotten into any questions that I had scripted. We've gone. <laughs> we've gone off track, but the language, the language thing, this is something that I'm going to be taking with me in the future and thinking a cool. lot about because that is, that is genius. It is something that I've never quantified, but it's very obvious, uh, <laughs> using my hindsight bias. It's very, very <laughs> obvious in hindsight. What's the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey? I'd say that if you if you spoke to me 10 years ago, I would have found it hard to imagine myself living in Vegas like permanently and just moving here and you know like I'm about eight, I'm about 18 months away from being able to apply for US citizenship and I I don't think I would have if you if you went back 10 years when I started out yeah it's it's been a, a it's been a wild kind of a, a journey you know so I guess uh me being here now is uh definitely not something I anticipated but it's something I'm very happy about Yep. That's, uh, working for two companies and mm-hmm. meeting your wife, moving to Vegas. It's a pretty yeah. unex- unexpected adventure. Yeah, for um, sure. Big adventure. What does your process look like for regularly improving your game? Um, that's an interesting one. I, I find honestly that the thing that helps me the most is coaching. Um, I, I learn so much from coaching from being forced to investigate concepts so that I can explain them to people. So my process now looks like a lot of finding new tools that I can use to explore the game. So new types of solvers, new types of tech that I can use, new angles to look at the game and, uh, and thinking mostly about how can I convey this to somebody else and just trusting that if I can do that, then it will sink in for me and it'll improve my own game. Yeah. That's uh coaching people is a good way to think deeper about things that maybe you intuitively feel like you understand, or you have, you know, created an agreement with yourself at some Mm -hmm. point that something is accurate or that something is quote unquote good um, when it needs to be reflected upon. And maybe you're a better poker player than when you first made that agreement. 
and it was something that you needed to uh, to change about your game. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. When you think about joy in your career as a card player, what's the first mm-hmm. memory that comes to mind? Absolutely. Without a doubt, it would be uh, 2018, my World Series final table, um, where I got second in the 1K Big Blind Ante. Um, wasn't really about the money or anything like that. It was about the fact that I made a big final table and a whole bunch of people came to rail me. And I felt really grateful that I had a lot of people around me that, you know, I'd only been in the U S for a year, but I felt like I had, I had tons of people that, that came out to um, like, even some people that I had only really engaged with on Twitter, you know, people who are like, Oh, I'm this person on Twitter. Or like we, we did a podcast like two years ago or whatever people who came out to to rail because they saw I was at a final table. Like I was, so grateful for that. And, uh, and that my wife was able to be there as well. That was, it was just amazing. So, um, that's hands down the best experience of my career. I love that, man. It's all about tribe community and the, that, mm-hmm. that feeling that, that people care about your journey and that you're, that they Absolutely. care, they care that you're giving them value, right? That you're mm-hmm. actually making a big impact. Yeah, for sure. And the funny part about it is I don't think there's too many players who would say that the best moment of their career was getting second in a bracelet event, but uh, I guess I'm I guess I'm one of the only ones. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Actually, uh I don't have that moment, right? Like I I've never had nobody's ever cheered cheered me on. I've never had a rail for a cash game uh session yeah. that I've been playing, right? Yeah, um, well, you know what's funny is Nick has that moment as well. Nick and I have that in common having gotten second in a bracelet event in the last couple of years. So, uh Nick and I commiserate about that from time to time. When you think about pain in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Probably the time period that I spent between about 2013 and 2014, where I was grinding a lot, but I was living on my own. I, was, um, I wasn't enjoying the game as much. I wasn't getting a lot out of it. I was running bad. I was playing pretty bad, honestly, given, given the circumstances. I... I think that was a that was a period where I, I probably wasn't too far away from just trying to figure out something else to do with my time because poker felt less enjoyable to me at that point. But it was just because I didn't have the community. I didn't have you know the, the stuff. Everything that I mentioned in the previous answer, I didn't have that back in in you know six or seven years ago in 2013, 2014. But I, I have it now, and I'm really grateful for that. Is it coincidental that that was around the time you met your wife? as well it's not yeah i mean obviously meeting her changed everything um it it was uh it was very um transformative for me in in just uh, a ton of ways and uh and i'm i'm obviously super grateful for that as well um and for for her and everything she's brought to my life how did having a stable relationship correlate to having more fun playing poker more more poker success or this want to continue Mm -hmm. on with the grind that's interesting. I, I think the the main thing is it it brings it into perspective when when you have something in your life, whether it's a relationship or some outside project or uh, a, a very supportive family or or whatever else it is you have in your life that provides a context that allows you to to focus on what's actually important in life, then poker gets ten times easier. But when you don't have that when you you have a, a, a sort of context for poker that makes it feel like succeeding in poker is the most important thing because succeeding in, fo- in, in poker becomes a vehicle for you to try to get all these other things. So like if I succeed in poker, then 
I'm going to be able to meet more people and, and I'm, then I'm going to be able to do X, Y, and Z, then now it becomes so much harder to succeed in poker. And, uh, and what I've always felt is like the, in order to, to actually succeed at something, you have to not be in a position where succeeding at that thing is the only thing that matters. And then when you get to a point where succeeding in that thing is not the be all and end all anymore, it actually liberates you to succeed now in that thing. And that's what happened to me. Ironically, right? It's a identity shift. You're, you're shifting your identity from a poker player to something else. And Mm -hmm. just ultra, ultra important. It's easy to get burned out. It's easy to get jaded. It's easy to fall apart mentally as a poker player, uh, just in general. Right. And when you're Mm -hmm. by yourself, it's exponentially easier. Yeah, absolutely. If you could gift all poker players, one book to read, what would it be and why? Ooh, interesting. I say this because I've just recently read this book. Um, I think that the most useful one at this point would be, it's a book called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. I'm not usually someone who reads a lot of books that are geared around business, but I found this book super interesting because I think it encapsulates what poker is in that it talks about the difference between a game where there's a finite start and end point and you can win or lose versus an infinite game where the participants are continually evolving and the game is continually changing. And the idea is that to win in this game, you have to be able to keep the game going. You can't kill the game off and just make it into a finite game where you win and everybody else loses. So um, I think that book, uh, as well as being super interesting from a business perspective for anybody who's interested in in anything entrepreneurial, uh, it relates a lot to poker because I think that every poker player could stand to take an attitude where they prioritize doing things that contribute to the health of the game more so than they prioritize capturing every tiny slice of EV that's available to them in every spot. Yeah, that that is a great. Yeah, that that that's a great. Um, just prioritizing the longevity of the game and the, the mm-hmm. long-term health of the game versus just taking every single bit that you can take from the game. Obviously a healthy perspective for the long-term future of poker. Mm-hmm. If you could erect a billboard that all poker players have to drive past on their way to the casino, what does it say? I would probably want to remind people to enjoy the game a little bit more and to kind of relax and realize that it we have all chosen to play this game that we enjoy because we enjoy it like we poker is not a mandatory thing that anybody is being forced to do and there are cuz i think there are a lot of guys out there who grind so hard having chosen to be poker players that they put themselves in a position where it's not fun anymore and especially when you play live, like it's so easy to tell who's not having fun at the table, who's not enjoying themselves. And it's just toxic. It it transmits to everybody else and it, it harms the game, honestly. Um, So I think that players who force themselves to play when they're not enjoying it. Yeah, of course, there's a certain extent where you make a living from it and you, you have to, you have to go to work every day, but there's also an element to it where, like I say, if you're not enjoying this game, then you're, you might be better off doing something else and the game might be better off with you doing something else too. It may be that this isn't what you're meant to do with your life in terms of what your best contribution to the world is. And the players that 
if, if players can be helped by being reminded like, yeah, just, just relax, enjoy the game, go out there and play and have fun with it. Then hopefully it would help them to, you know, to continue enjoying it. But it also might remind some players that if they, if they sit there and they think, man, I don't really enjoy poker that much anymore. If they go ahead and do something else, then that's fine for everybody too. A lot of, so there's a lot of uh, almost conflicting ideas here that I, I just absolutely love that <laughs> getting involved in a serious relationship when poker is not your sole focus, you become better mm-hmm. at poker, right? Yeah. This is almost counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. When you're having more fun and you're not taking everything so serious at a live game, you have a higher win rate. You love yeah. the game. You're more focused. Your your ability to put in more hours is mm-hmm. higher. You can shrug off bad beats much easier. So again, it's this yeah. this uh, almost, I'm not going to say caring less, but putting more focus directly on your identity and the, the results mm-hmm. of each individual session allows you to be a better poker player at the end of the day. Very yeah. it's fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. That contradiction is... Uh, it's hard to grasp, but it's something Nick and I have talked about a lot. Um, it, it's, it's definitely something that comes up in conversations uh, where you have to have this like attachment to, you have to like want to win, but you have to want to win not because you think winning is going to give you something. You have to want to win just because you prioritize making healthy decisions and making, prior, uh, and, and, and making decisions that you are going to benefit from uh, in and of themselves. So there's a, a certain kind of prioritization there where you don't, you don't want the outcome. You're completely separated from the outcome, but you, you value the process so highly that it becomes all about that. And enjoyment is a big part of that too. And there's a lot of, um, you know, th- this expands to the real world too, right? Like if your focus is solely money, for instance, mm-hmm. and not helping people or providing value, a lot of times you fail because you don't, yep. you don't see that the value is in helping people. And if you mm-hmm. help enough people, if you connect enough people, the money is a side effect of all yeah. these other actions, right? Yeah, and people it's, a, that, yeah it's a huge factor. Go right. ahead. There's just people that come, come into poker that are solely about the money, are solely about prestige, mm-hmm. are solely about the results, often flame out. People whose identity is solely wrapped around poker mm-hmm. – I almost never see them succeed. I can't think of one right. success story in my head of, and, and you see this often in the poker world, you see guys flame out you see guys that are, you know, come out like a house of fire. And I would say that for people running stables, for people running coaching groups, this is a big, this is uh, an ongoing process, something that they see, or you guys, I would say it's solve for why or uh, at mm-hmm. poker detox see very, very frequently. Yeah, absolutely. We do. Um, I think the, the thing about the thing about live poker is it's it's a little bit less easy to to burn out because you you can't quite so easily just put yourself in a mindset where you say I'm just going to grind like 24/7 but the there are a lot of online guys and I've done this myself who like they say okay I'm just going to really go all in on poker now I'm just going to play like every day 10 hours a day just studying as much as I can like I'm just going to play all the time just like lock themselves in a room and try to just get as good at poker as they can in a, in a six month period. And that just doesn't work by like month two. You're like, man, I just want to go do something else. I just want to be outside. I just want to have a life again. So that's just that, uh, the sustainability of that approach 
is obviously really low compared to one that says like, I'm willing to take 20% longer to get to a certain point because I can't put my, I can't afford to put myself through a process that might have me burn out midway to actually getting there. Right. And and like the curiosity element to me is so important to have as a poker player and that Mm -hmm. like, Almost never am I playing poker in in the middle of a session and I'm in focus mode, right? Pure focus mm-hmm. mode. Do I have this revelation that changes my game, my ability mm-hmm. to implement strategies that makes, you know, skyrockets my win rate, right? These realizations come in the diffuse mode when I'm not thinking about, I'm mm-hmm. not focused on the game. I'm thinking about other stuff, or maybe I have a problem that I encountered in my session and then it's in the back of my mind and the process is working to come up with a solution. Um, so most of the gains that you have are more away from the table. So like there needs to be this balance between putting in this volume and also taking time off and just completely disconnecting from poker entirely so that you Mm -hmm. can, you can, uh, connect concepts much better than you would if you're just grinding 24 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the, the revelations don't come when you're in the middle of playing because you're in flow state. You know, you're, you're trying to engineer a state where your brain is receptive to information, but it's in a performance mode. It's not in a learning mode. And the learning comes at other times. What's interesting is I found that I learn a ton when I'm sweating other players online. Oh, interesting. I, yeah. I, I sweat them and like, there's no pressure on me for mm-hmm. performance. So I'm just kind of like watching what's going on. And I I pick up lots of things that maybe I would miss in just a pure focus mode when, Mm -hmm. you know, there's obviously a difference between uh, armchair, (laughs) armchair quarterbacking than being in the game (laughs) with all of the pressure on you in the moment. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the process of railing someone or just watching the game without having to make the decisions yourself can be super valuable. I watch a lot of the, I watch a lot of live streams of, of, you know, or, or like just, televised games of, of, you know, high stakes, uh, cash streams or, or high rollers or whatever, um, just to see like what the, what the strategy evolutions are that are taking place at these higher levels and to, to keep abreast of these things, because it's so interesting and important to, to be able to understand that whatever the guys in the high rollers are doing now, the guys in the one case will be doing in like two or three years, probably, you know, so uh, it filters down and, and understanding that and, and studying from, from that top down perspective can be super valuable too. Absolutely. Do you have any uh, projects you're working on that are near and dear to your heart? Um, I do. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because by the time this comes out, this project will be over and done with. I was going to plug uh, a self Y project that we're doing a, uh, a course that's taking place starting next week called homeschool, but um, it, it's, it's kind of designed as a course to, to cater to the people who are like stuck at home in the next month, basically. But it may be uh, relevant in three months. <laughs> There's a very good <laughs> chance it it's be. still relevant, right? Maybe it will be. So maybe we'll be running more and more iterations of this thing moving forward. I'm not sure exactly, but we are, uh, we're running this course We're we're donating 10% of the proceeds to meals on wheels to, um, to help, uh, you know, take care of uh, some of our seniors who are maybe at more risk from from COVID nineteen than than others, and uh, make sure that they get uh, provided with with meals and and that service can continue. So we're, we're there's a charity element to it. We're also running this this four week course that uh, we're, we're running homeschool as a four week course that's basically going to be taught by myself and uh, Berkey and Christian Soto, 
And uh, it's going to be basically three hours a day, five days a week. Uh, you can log in and, and basically be given coaching by us uh, as a, a structured program that sort of takes you from a, a, a pretty straightforward starting point to a very complex endpoint where we're using solvers and, and all sorts of uh, more complex tools like that. So that's a cool project that we're doing. And it's something that's going to be able to, to give back to a, um, a worthwhile cause as well. Uh, but as I say, the, as to whether it's still going to be relevant by the time this comes out, uh, we hope it's not, you know, we hope that we just do it once and then the whole thing kind of blows over, but we may, we may run it again. We don't really know yet. Uh, that's, uh, that's the most important thing on my plate right now. Cause that's starting next week. Uh, outside of that, uh, I'm just going to be getting back on some online poker pretty soon, I think. And, uh, we'll see how that goes. Love it, Matt. Love it. And uh, I'm sure in some iteration it'll exist moving in, into the future, right? You, I think y'all, so. y'all are going to um, do t- y'all are going to do too much work for it to be a one off. So it'll be it'll yeah, be something something down the road. Um, mm-hmm. That's true. Final question, man. Uh, sure. Where where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Sure. Um, well, first of all, you can go to the sites for either of the companies I work for. That's tv.solfawai.io or pokerdetox.com. Um, those companies will be happy to uh, get a plug, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, for me, it's uh, MGH Poker on Twitter. Uh, that's probably the best place. If you have coaching inquiries or inquiries about Solfawai or any of my um, my personal work, people can email me at matthewhunt@solfawaiacademy.com. Um, so I'm happy to, to take inquiries there given that, um, we're all in a bit of an uncertain environment. And I know there's some people who have been, uh, I think reaching out lately with some advice, like wanting some advice. So if, if there are people out there who, who sort of are in a, an awkward position with the way poker is going over the next few months, I'm happy to provide any input there, but, uh, generally Twitter is the best place. You'll find me pretty active on that. And all this will be on the show page and that's solve the number four W H Y. Correct. Actually, it's just the word F O R. <laughs> okay, it's, see, it's good, uh, to, good to quantify. Yeah, there's, it's funny because everybody spells it with a four, with a number four, but it's actually that's actually not in the company name. So it's uh, just solve four Y or words. Isn't it on the hats like S four Y? Maybe that's where the the it's not. comes from. Uh, it's not. It's it, nowhere. It's, there's it, no. We've four? never had that. We have. I, in fact, uh, it's it's not it's not here. I have one of those hats that I could just hold up and show you. That it's not there. Yeah. But, um, it's a, it's a light bulb logo that has a Y in the middle. So I don't know what, like that we used to have, we used to have a different logo. We used to have like the thinking man logo, but we, we couldn't use that anymore. So, uh, but no, we've, we've actually, believe it or not, we've never had the number four anywhere in any of our actual company branding, but everybody seems to think that we have, which is wow. Weird. That's um, like Mandela. That's weird. Mandela. Weird. Effect. Yeah, I, I think, I think these days it's like, uh, everybody's so used to companies abbreviating things that everybody just assumes that there's a number four there, but no, we just, we just write the words out and everybody else does the abbreviating. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> nice man. Well, it's been super, super pleasure having you on come back on in a, in a year or so. We'll get up yeah. to date on all the things going on and Matt hunts world and going on with solve for why and poker detox. Absolutely. I'm excited to. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.